With life expectancy rates rising rapidly across the globe thanks to advances in healthcare and better living standards, many of us will get the chance to celebrate our 100th birthday. But the financial implications of hitting such a milestone mean that the concept of traditional retirement is fast disappearing. After all, can we really afford to fund our golden years for up to 40 years when you factor in the average retirement age of 65? There are currently 703 million people in the world aged 65 or over, and that figure is expected to double to more than 1.5 billion by 2015. That's according to the United Nations. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization says global life expectancy increased by 5.5 years between 2000 and 2016. So how do we fund our longer lives? Are retirement funds and state pensions sustainable if people are going to live for so long? And should we all be considering a longer working life if we want to be financially comfortable in the future? Welcome to Pocketful of Durham's. I'm Alice Hayne from The National and joining me today is Andrew J. Scott, a professor of economics at the London Business School and co-author of The 100-Year Life, Living and Working in an Age of Longevity. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you, Alice. It's a pleasure to join you, and I'm always happy to discuss this fascinating topic. Well, I mean, living to 100 used to be quite an achievement. I mean, but so many more people appear to be hitting that milestone I hear about these days. And as someone edging closer to that halfway point, I'm hoping I get to do that too. But if we're all going to live to 100, how are we going to pay for it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And of course, um, you know, as you say, that it's the probability of living to 100 is increasing quite significantly. Number of people aged over 100 is the fastest growing demographic group in the world. The UK government uh, says that one in five kids today will live to be 100. But of course, it's not just living to 100, it's living regularly into the 90s, which is now a pretty common occurrence. So yeah, how are we going to pay for it? Well, you've got three options. You can either save more, you can either try and find a higher return on your investment or you can work for longer. The saving more is tricky because most people struggle to save enough anyway. Um, getting the higher return, well, I mean, there's nowhere out there we can get a higher return that's uh, risk-free. Uh, and of course, what we're seeing actually with longer lives and people saving more is actually very low interest rates. So ultimately, it does involve working for longer, which it's kind of a depressing thought when we've started with the good news that you're living for longer. But I think the question is how we work or change and how we structure our careers and life or change in order to make those longer careers more palatable. So, I mean, what prompted you to write the book? I have to say, I come from a family where people live well into their 90s. You know, it's quite the norm. So I'm always interested in this topic because my father always talks about you've got to be able to fund yourself for 40 years. So what prompted you to write that book in the first place i should always listen to your father alice um <laughs> uh well it's interesting yeah and uh i mean you've obviously got good genes and i think one of the challenges these increases in life expectancy are such that most generations are living around six to nine years longer than the previous one so whatever your grandparents did you can add another decade or two onto that if those trends continue so uh, wow that's quite a thought that's terrifying well, uh, yeah, it's daunting, uh, but exciting too. Uh, and we're, I mean, I think it's interesting how people get frightened about this. And we'll come back to later about how they feel about ageing, I'm sure. Um, but most people I know don't feel they have enough time. So when you say life's going to get longer, you've got more time. So the key question is, and how are you going to use it? But, but how do I get into it? I guess there's two um, motivations, one professional and one personal. At London Business School, I always used to give a 
a lecture series on the world economy problems and prospects more problems and prospects these days but one of the things i would talk about was the aging society which is a story that as we live for longer and fewer people are born we're seeing an aging society and it's pretty bleak economically it says this old people are a problem they get ill they need pensions they can't work and we can't afford it but i was kind of puzzled because the, the sort of the key fact is that on average we're living longer and we're healthier for longer and that sounds like really good news to me. So how do you turn that individual good news story into a bad news story? And then I, I realized that it wasn't so much about aging, it was about longevity, we're aging differently. So yes, there is more old people, but the big story is that how we're aging is changing and how do we maximize that to our advantage? And then I think the other thing that struck me was just looking at my own kids. And uh, you know, you, as a parent, you try and give them advice like your father gives you, but one, at least my kids tend to ignore that advice, but also you just realized they were doing things very differently because the world was different. And that's not just about Facebook, et cetera. But, you know, I, I did things in my mid-20s that my parents did in terms of marriage, getting a house, starting a job. They did in their late teens. And you know, my kids are probably going to do that in their early 30s. So something's changing. And you look around and you can see people of all ages are behaving differently. And I kind of wanted to connect that to longevity. So I spoke to my colleague, London Business School, Linda Grattan, who tends to focus on corporates. And between us, we said, we need to write a book about this. So what did you actually find out? Because if we're talking about this, you know, living two, one or two decades longer than our grandparents, for example, I'm looking at 120. So, so what did you find out? I'm happy to go that far, but I just want to make sure I get there the right way. So what's your conclusion? And there's a big debate about how long we can live for. The oldest lady, a uh, woman ever to live in terms of documents is a, a French lady who died at 122 years and 167 days. So we know that's humanly possible. So basically, the starting point was it was about time. I think we make a mistake that we think that these longer lives mean that all of it's coming at the end of life. But I said earlier that in every decade, life expectancy is increasing by about two or three years. So what that means is think of it the following way. At the end of every day, it would be like having another six to eight hours. That's what it means if every 10 years, life expectancy is increasing by two or three. So it's kind of like the day going from 24 to 32 hours. And then the sort of thing is, oh, wow, okay, I've got more time. I'm going to do things differently. And you wouldn't think that those eight hours just come at the end of the day. You would rearrange your whole day. Now, you know, we did, we'd probably do things differently. I would get up earlier, go to bed later, have a lovely sleep in the middle of the day. I'd probably have five, hopefully smaller meals rather than, but I would rearrange time. And that's really what I think is happening with longevity. We've got more life and it's about rearranging all of life, which I think is why we're seeing people marrying later, have families later, and of course work later, but just behave differently. So that was, I think, was the first thing. This is really about having more time. And rather than that time come at the end of life, if you kind of look at the data in a way where it's really come is extending middle age. So you could have the 50 plus time is like extra life being inserted into it. And then you start to think about how you, in the 20th century, we arrange a life sort of based around 70 years, a three-stage life of education, work and retirement. But if you've got to stretch that out, to 100 years, it doesn't look very good because it comes up with a notion of a 60-year career of working from 20 to 80 if you're going to finance this 100-year life. And I don't know anyone who finds that exciting doing it in the current way. You know, just to keep doing the same thing in the way we currently do things for, for 60 years sounds quite daunting, even if it were possible. So 
then we think there's a notion of a multi-stage life emerging where over this 60-year career, you have many transitions, you'll do different things uh, with different aims. Sometimes it'll be about making money. Sometimes it may be something entrepreneurial. Sometimes maybe something with a better work-life balance. Other times it'll be something more socially minded. But we are creating what Laura Carson at Stanford calls a new map of life. So that's an interesting prospect. And I like that idea. I like the way of mixing it up a bit. Um, but what, how are we going to finance all of that? I mean, the biggest challenge surely is how you're going to fund it. I suppose if you, you keep working longer, then you'll keep earning longer in theory. That I think has to be the key thing. I mean, if you look at this economically, kind of when you've got more time, in a way you're wealthier. And when you're wealthier, you want more of everything. You want more to consume more and you want to have more leisure. The only thing is to sort of to finance the consumption, you need to work for longer. But because you want more leisure, the increase in work probably won't quite match the increase in life expectancy. So, yes, you'll work for longer because ultimately I think it's the only way that we can finance these longer lives unless you're prepared to save a lot more, which most people aren't. So working for longer seems key. But then I think what's interesting, and we currently think about this three-stage model of life, where one of the major motivations of the second stage working is creating money for retirement, which is the third stage. And so when you sort of say, we're well, going to live for longer, people immediately go to their finances. I've got to save more. I need to work for more. But if you are going to have to work for longer, and I, you know, I hate to depress people, but if you are in your mid-40s, you've got more work to come than you've done already, uh, given longevity trends. That's quite a sobering thought. And you start to realize that your lifetime planning where you are now is not just about how much money you're going to shovel into retirement. It's, well, I need to invest in lots of things. I need to invest in my fitness and health so I can carry on working longer. I need to invest in my skills so that I can surf the technology wave that's coming and still maintain my employability. I need to invest a lot in relationships so that, uh, you know, I've got a good life to support this uh, uh, longer career and longer life. Uh, and also just in a sense of purpose and engagement. Uh, so it's, it's about investing in a much broader portfolio of assets than just the financial ones. You've got to think about your skills and other things as well. And we're talking about the book, you know, The 100-Year Life, the, the most recent book, The New Long Life, also superimposes onto this the challenges of technology, which are also going to bring about a big change in how we work, when we work, and the nature of our careers. So we need to invest in a range of things other than just our finances. But if we are bringing it back to finances, at the moment, as you say, people have this very set retirement, you know, it's... It, in the personal finance world, there's this big movement of trying to retire ahead of that. I mean, is the average age of retirement still 65 around the world? Well, so it's a really complicated question to answer and take to the academic here. Uh, and so one is, you know, is an average really meaningful anymore? Because what we're seeing is a great deal of diversity in how people behave. There's definitely a trend for people working for longer. Uh, you're seeing governments uh, increase either the retirement age or actually in many countries, to some extent, retirement's illegal, um, but you have what's called a state pension age, which is the age where lots of people stop working because they get a pension. And you're seeing that increase uh, in, in many, many countries. Uh, so it's moved away from 65 to 66 to 67. No one's yet announced a retirement age at 70, but give it time and they will get there. But what you're also seeing is a lot of people continuing to work after 
65 or after retirement. I read the other day, it's like one in four Brits are unretiring within five years of retiring. You're seeing the number of people working aged over 60 and over 70 increase quite substantially. In the US, the number of workers aged over 70 has uh, doubled the last 10 years uh, and is set to double again, according to the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics. And if you look at uh, employment around the world, particularly in the rich countries, in the 10 years before COVID, 100% of the increase in employment in the G7 countries can be explained by more people aged over 55 working. So yes, retirement is changing. It's happening later. It's not a hard stop. Many people carry on working flexibly. There's also a great deal of diversity in what people do. So kind of retirement in this sense of a hard stop at a single age that everyone does has already disappeared. I have to say, in my local supermarket, there is a gentleman, and I'm going to call him a gentleman because that's how he comes across to me. And he is in his early 70s, and he used to be a very big city high flyer in London. And now he sits at a, t- uh, a supermarket till and processes people's shopping. And he's absolutely charming. And he just says, I'm enjoying a different type of work at a different stage of my life and it's more about the social aspects of it which feeds a lot into what you're saying when we talk about the retirement pot which again is a big personal finance focus is you've got to there's tremendous pressure to have enough in it you know sometimes it's quite exhausting have I saved enough have I saved enough and I think as you say we're not saving enough but are pension funds even sustainable in the face of people living longer can they actually support us so many issues. As I don't think the concept of a pension as it currently is set up is sustainable for a whole bunch of reasons. One is the very concept of a pension emerged with this three-stage life and even the meaning of the word pension changed to the notion that it was something older people got rather than just a regular sum of money that people received. So in a three-stage life, stage two is working, building out assets to finance stage three, which is retirement. If the multi-stage life comes along, then actually retirement kind of disappears in a simple sense. And so do the simple concepts of a pension. I'm going to need to have a lot of money to fund career breaks, retraining, reskilling, when I ramp down and ramp up. I'm going to have to have much more complicated long-term financial planning than just a simple pension, which currently is our solution for long-term financing. So in that sense, it will need to change. Um, clearly defined benefit pensions, uh, you know, those which pay a fixed amount uh, are definitely unsustainable given life expectancy I- increases. Uh, so that's going to be a real challenge, which is why very few organisations now offer defined benefit. You've obviously got defined contributions where you put your money in and how much you get at the end depends upon how much you put in and the rate of return in the marketplace. That's obviously sustainable because what you get out is what related to what you put in. It just may not be enough to fund a very long retirement, particularly when you've got kind of zero interest rates right now. So funding pensions to provide the level of retirement that people expected at age 65, I think, is now unsustainable. So therefore, you either change the date at which you retire uh, and look at things in a different way. And so does that make trying to estimate how much you need in your retirement pot almost impossible in a way? Well, in one level, it's quite simple now because with 0% interest rates, if you want to have $20,000 or 20 years, it's just 20 times 20. So on one level, it's kind of quite simple. But I think you know, the question is, it's now because retirement is such a diverse activity. Some people are still working later. Um, you're going to need to have very individual, specific decision-making 
uh, in deciding what your retirement pot is. And then the other thing I think is so crucial, any good financial advisor, and by the way, I'm not qualified to give financial advice and nothing I say should be taken as financial advice, but any good financial advisor would tell you that really what you want to do is think about the life you want and then plan your finances around it rather than make your life fit the finances. And this investment in a broader range of assets, particularly as you get older, is key. Making sure that I'm not just building up my financial assets, I'm investing in my health by keeping active, investing in my relationships, investing in a sense of purpose and engagement, like the example you gave of the person in the supermarket who helps you, uh, and investing in your skills are key. So the secret to a long life is you will have to invest more, but you have to think much more broadly about your investments. Because, for instance, investing in education and skills in your 50s may be the thing that keeps you working into your 70s, and that may be a better investment in your retirement fund than sticking money in the market today. What about COVID, though? How has that changed the picture? I mean, does that, is that kind of reinforcing the fact that we might have to work for longer because we're not getting any return on our investments right now? Yeah, I mean, COVID is this obviously this horrible multidimensional shock that acts, I think, as an accelerant and as a stress test. So it's accelerated trends and revealed where weaknesses lie. So one thing COVID has shown, because it's sort of a viral form of aging, it's just how important good health is when you age. You know, the healthier you are, the more chance you've got as you age of being able to uh, survive uh, COVID. So this goes back to this issue about investing in your future is a clearly health-related in part. Um, but economically, of course, I think it's going to have a, in a horrible legacy. We're beginning to see, you know, we've seen this terrible recession, but we're beginning to see some of the shakeout that's going to come in terms of higher unemployment going forward. Uh, it does look like uh, interest rates and rates of return are going to go even lower as a consequence of this. And the other thing that does worry me is we're going to see a big increase in unemployment. Uh, we will see that a lot amongst the young, but also when I see it in people aged 55 plus. And that's what always worries me, because if you look at the labour market, we focus on retirement, but employment starts to sort of fall uh, amongst those 50 plus. And some of that is about early retirement, but a lot is about illness, but a lot is also about being made redundant. And it's hard to get another job in your 50s. There's a lot of ageism in the recruitment process. So my big worry around COVID is how it's going to affect people's retirement plans because they unexpectedly lose their job. They think if they can carry on working to their 60s, they'll be fine. But then something happens uh, and they don't. And COVID clearly has increased the risk of that. So how can people prepare themselves for that? You know, if we are going to be working for longer and there's the risk of redundancy in our 50s, as you say, you know, this reskilling is actually quite important. It could be that, you know, I, I'm someone who's in my um, mid-40s and I'm already struggling sometimes digitally to keep up with my much younger colleagues. And as I age, it's going to get harder. So is it is it important for me to really try and stay abreast of those trends and, and keep relevant so that if, you know, journalism comes to an end for me in the next five to 10 years, I can do something else. Is, is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And we pick up on that interaction with technology more in, in the new long life where we sort of say, yeah, life learning is going to be really important. And, you know, sometimes that is actually going back to college and doing a degree or a long course where, you know, you get kind of a sense of rejuvenation and repurposing. But a lot of it will be much shorter courses where you're just picking up the skills you need for a specific job or task that gives you the confidence or the know-how to just carry on competing with those who you say have got better technology skills. So yes, absolutely learning is going to be key. 
But I think this also fits into something else, which is that, you know, in these longer lives and these multi-stage careers, you're going to go through more transitions. So the other thing is thinking, well, I actually, you know, I used to be great at doing this, but I'm now finding as I get older, my skills are shifting into this area and I need to then follow that with perhaps a new role. You know, it, it may be a shift away from, uh, you know, writing or doing calculations to doing something different. We know that what you're good at in terms of your brain changes over time. What that requires is a willingness to accept change and transition. So to be flexible in your sense of self. So there's sort of two ways of defending yourself. One is to build up your skills to technology proof yourself for the journalist job of the future. The other is to say, well, actually, I'm you know a creative person who's good at getting information and then put and then putting out a viewpoint and have an opinion, and that's something that can be used in other contexts, but not to be too wedded to the notion that I am defined by being an economics professor or being an accountant or whatever the job may be. And that, I think, is a challenging issue. In the 20th century, we invented two stages of life. We invented teenagers and we invented retirement. And both of them are a transition that is kind of necessary and now supported. I think what we're going to start to see more and more as people have to work in their 70s and 80s is the need for a midlife transition. And Mark Friedman, who runs a fascinating organization in the States called Encore.org, looking at Encore careers with a social purpose, says we don't really have a midlife crisis, we have a midlife chasm. We lack the institutions to support people going through transitions in midlife. Now, I can see that happening a lot more all around me right now, but it does require a certain flexibility of mind. Well, I agree with that, because as you get older, you get more sort of rigid in your thinking, don't you? But it, as well as money and careers and staying relevant and keeping on top of it all, you've also got to stay healthy. I mean, living to 100 is one thing, but living to 100 well is another. So, you don't, I don't want to live to 120 and spend the last 30 years of my life, you know, holding a seat in a care home. I want to make sure I'm still active and, and busy and I've got things going on. So how, how do we make sure that we achieve that as well? Absolutely. And the welcome to, I think, what is one of the biggest emerging markets. Um, every country in the world is ageing. And the most important thing about ageing is ageing well. In the 20th century, we saw this huge growth in the life insurance industry because there was a big risk of dying young. So you wanted to make sure that your family and your children were left financially well uh, disposed. So we had life insurance. We've now got a problem with what's called longevity insurance. We now run the risk of outliving our finances, outliving our health, outliving our sense of purpose and our skills. And that's a, a terrifying prospect. So, you know, anything that can deal with that longevity insurance is important. And at the heart of it is health. Uh, I'm doing some work with uh, David Sinclair of Harvard Medical School and Martin Lesson from Oxford University. And we're just sort of trying to put a value on aging well. And it's just huge. And actually, the longer you live, the bigger that value is and the, and the better you age, the more you value further improvements in how you age. So this is the industry that is going to be uh, just explosive over the next 30, 40 years, helping people with longevity insurance. So how do you keep healthy? Well, there's a lot of um, interesting scientific work that is trying to understand the biological pathways of aging. Uh, and sort of offer the prospect of pills and treatments that can uh, slow down aging or even reverse it in some cases. But at the moment, we're still left with a pretty basic advice, which is don't eat too much, exercise an awful lot. Uh, you know, not, not, not huge, huge amounts, but keep moving, keep active, uh, don't be overweight, don't drink too much, don't eat too much. Um, 
and just have a sense of purpose and engagement. So it's all the stuff that kind of we've always been told uh, by grandparents and parents, but it, it still is incredibly important. And I think what's interesting about the health side is we're pretty conditioned to think about the health sector as going into a hospital or seeing a doctor when you get ill and then being treated. And when most people are under 50, that was the right thing for a health system. With more and more people living over 50, as we're seeing with COVID, the key thing for older people is not to get ill in the first place. So it has to be a focus on preventative health rather than interventions. So it's keeping healthy as opposed to getting treated when you're ill. That's a big shift. Yes, health is key. And I agree with you. Prevention is absolutely the way forward. It's something I'm always personally working on is I'm trying to stay healthy and prevent anything else from happening along the way. But as well as that, as well as health, the important part of that is mental health and is marriage and, and having family around you. Is that an important way to kind of keep on track? Depends how you get on with your partner and your children, I guess, isn't it? Um, <laughs> uh, yes, it is. And I think this is where we get to some very interesting issues. So um, there's a, a famous Harvard grant study about what makes for a good life. And, and kind of the conclusion is that money makes you happier. It doesn't make you happy, but it's good relationships that are, make you happy. So absolutely, uh, working on those is really important. This has really interesting issues for the family because we are going to see more and more four-generation households as opposed to three-generation households. You, you've heard of the sandwich generation, the parents sandwich between their, you know, their bear parents and their children. Or you're going to see the club sandwich generation soon where you've got great-grandparents, grandparents, parents and children. And that has all sorts of possibilities for intergenerational sharing. With a fall in the birth rate, you know, when I remember as a youngster going to family gatherings, there were loads of kids and not many old people. It's not going to be the way of the future. We're going to see a lot more intergenerational mixing has to happen. So working across the generations is going to be important. But that has some interesting issues for things like family firms, like, you know, when do you take over the family firm? Who gets the inheritance? Uh, you know, in my own country, the, you know, the Queen is like 94 and Prince Philip is 71 and he still hasn't got the job. So we're going to see a very different dynamics within the family. And I think for financial planning, that's very interesting because if you think about bequests, uh, I know we talk about financial shows, you know, when the 90-year-old or 100-year-old passes, who gets the money? Is it the 80-year-old or the 40-year-old or the 20 I mean, there's a lot to work on there. So, yeah, relationships are key. Good relationships are important. Uh, and working on them throughout your life is going to be an important investment. Spoken like a true economist. So with that in mind, what are your top three tips to ensure that we live to 100 well, but we also do it in a way that is affordable? The first is because we're living longer than past generations, you've got to do things differently. So don't look to what your parents or your grandparents did. You've got to have to devise a whole new future for you because uh, it's not that 70 is the new 60, which is people often say, it's just that 70 is the new 70. Uh, you're 70 year old, but you've got different health and different future than past 70-year-olds. So that holds at every age. Do things differently. Don't follow social norms. Look around and see what you think would work for you. The second is with more future ahead of you, you've critically got to think much more of your future self. So what would your future self want you to give them? Uh, and we talked about finances, but as you said, health and relationships are going to be really, really important. So you've got to be motivated to give things to your future self much more. It's going to be a really important life skill. 
And then the third one, I think, in this multi-stage life, as you sort of deal with change and transitions a lot more over a longer time period, is I guess ask yourself, well, what is it that makes it my life? What is a sense of purpose or values that defines it? Uh, my father, who was a, a good and wise man, worked for, I think, 50 years in the newspaper industry. And I think if you asked him what he did in his career, he'd say, I worked in newspapers. But I'm not sure my children would be able to say anything quite as simple as that. So with a life of many more changes and transitions, how you identify yourself is something about your underlying sense of purpose and values. And perhaps that's the real advantage of a longer life, working out what that is. Well, I look forward to the, the next 50, I'm trying to work it out, 56 years of my life. No, I think it's 55 years of my life before I hit 100. I look forward to doing it extremely well. Thank you for all the advice, Andrew. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to Thank you this week to Andrew J. Scott. If you would like advice on your personal finance issues, you can write to me on PF at thenational.ae and remember that's PF for personal finance. Please do subscribe to the podcast in your podcasting app to receive weekly updates and also leave us a review so we know what you think. This episode was produced by Arthur Edison. I've been your host, Alice Payne.